If you have a Bible with you this evening, or you can open that Bible app, but I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We'll also have the words up on the screen, and uh, we're, we're going to spend some time there a little bit later on uh, this evening. But Easter weekend, it's here, and every year lots of people celebrate in a number of different ways. Uh, the events of Easter, but this evening we are thankful that we can meet together, we can celebrate the real meaning of Easter, the fact that Jesus would come in our place. We, we think that uh, about how a lot of times we can come into a place like this and maybe we read some scriptures about the events of the crucifixion, we sing some songs uh, about the cross, about redemption, and about his love. Some of you may feel really overjoyed when you do that, when you sing those songs, when you read those scriptures, because it reminds you of how much God loves you. And some of you, though, may not be sure, does Jesus really love me? Maybe you're here this evening, and if you are brutally honest, you feel guilty. You're sitting here, and all you can think about is how you've blown it this week, or maybe even how you've blown it today. And you think, you know what? I know that Jesus loves us, but I'm not really sure if Jesus loves me. Maybe you're here this evening, and you feel really distant from God. Maybe at times you have felt that way in your life, and maybe at time, maybe you're feeling that way right now. I know that I've felt that way in my life at times, distant from God. You know, as I think about the, the fact of being distant and being alone, um, my mind goes back to something that happened recently and in, an encounter that I had a few weeks ago that also had some kind of funny moments, even though it was kind of a serious thing. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments before, but you're just not sure if you should laugh or if you should cry or what you should do. But it was a Thursday afternoon and I'd gone out to run a couple of errands and I made my first stop and I get out of the car, I go do my errand, I come back, get in the car, I start the car, put it back in gear and it doesn't go anywhere at first. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, you know, it's 20 years old, this car almost 20 years old and so sometimes things like this happen and it's not a big deal. I jiggle the gear shifter a little bit and it, it, I put it in gear again and it works just fine. And so I take off, I'm driving down the street and all of a sudden I'm on Western and I, I feel like it, it just, something's wrong. It's not working the way it's supposed to work. And so I know that not too far away from where I'm at is Nikki's restaurant, 105th and Western. And I know that there's this little parking lot there. And so I think, well, why don't I just pull in there, uh, make sure everything's okay, and, and then head on my way. But I, I pull into the parking lot and I, I move the gear shifter around a little bit and the gear shifter gets stuck. It's stuck in reverse. And I'm jiggling it around and I'm banging on it. I'm doing everything I can. I cannot get it out of reverse. And I am sitting there right in the middle of this parking lot. And so I try to back up into a place where I'd kind of be out of people's way. But that's kind of hard to do in a small, small parking lot. And in fact, we've got a picture here this evening to help you kind of picture this and see where it was that I was parked. But I'm right there, that tan car on the right of the picture. But, but people are honking their horns and they're giving me all these dirty looks and I can't go anywhere. And, and I'm sitting there with my foot on the brake and, and, and I'm, I'm feeling like I don't know what to do. And then I get this thought in my mind. You know what? I'm going to call the mechanic, the car mechanic. Maybe he can help me out. 
And, and they, they did. They, they said, hey, we'll send a tow truck over. But after I sat there for an hour and a half, I had to make a number of phone calls because they weren't showing up. And I started to wonder, is anyone listening? Does anyone care? Is anybody going to be able to help me? I'm just sitting here. Maybe I'll be sitting here all night with my foot on the brake. Now, eventually, the tow truck driver did come, and, he, and they were able to fix the car a few days later. But I remember having this feeling of being all alone, of uh, I'm sitting there in this parking lot, and, and people are just uh, wanting me to get out of their way. They're honking their horns. They're giving me these dirty looks. But I can't go anywhere. I, I can't move. And, and I tried to roll down my window and say, hey, I, I'm sorry, I just can't move. But when I did that, the, the people just walked the other way, and they wouldn't even listen to me. I tried to call the mechanic, but they, they were busy. And I tried to call the tow truck company, but, but they had other people to take care of. And they got lost on the way over. And, and my wife, I'm, I'm talking to her on the phone and not, not a whole lot that she could do anyway. But in the middle of our conversation, her phone dies, which is a whole other story in and of itself. But in, the, in that moment, all of these difficult things are going on around me, and I feel so distant from everyone. I feel so all alone. Maybe you have felt that way before. Maybe you feel that way right now. And maybe you felt that way when it comes to other people, but maybe you feel that way about God sometimes. Because the reality is this, that at times... We can feel like we are weighed down by all of the sin and shame in our lives. And we feel like, you know what? Even God doesn't want to be near me right now. Well, tonight we are going to be in Matthew chapter 27. But before we get there, I just want to quickly talk about the 39 other books of the Bible first. So that we can kind of get a little bit of an understanding of the context here. And I promise that we're going to get out at a reasonable time tonight. But... If you don't already know this, the Bible starts out at the very beginning and it describes how a very good God created a very good creation and everything was going well until we, humanity, shows up. It was Satan the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve, but, but they had this one rule to follow and the one rule was this, don't eat from this one tree in the garden. How long were they able to resist that temptation to eat from the tree? Well, we don't know for sure, but all of a sudden they decide that they are going to disobey God and follow their own desires. They're going to do what they want to do. And so they, they were the keepers of this garden. They were in charge of caring for all that God had created and designed in this place. Yet somewhere along the way, because uh, they sinned, God sends them out of this garden paradise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, here's what we read. He, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword was turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, Adam and Eve were in this garden paradise in the presence of God. They would walk with God. They would talk with him every day. But when they sin, they get kicked out of this garden, out of the presence of God. And so now they are no longer the caretakers of this garden. Now the cherubim is. Now you might wonder, well, what is a cherubim? A, a cherubim is basically an angel with this flaming sword in his hand. And I know in our culture today, oftentimes when we think about angels, we think about these chubby babies on clouds in harps. But, 
Uh, basically, this is a massively imposing figure. It is, he's got a flaming sword in his hand. He is standing there at the front of the garden and, and he is making sure that no one can come in anymore. Our sin is keeping us out of the presence of God. But this cherubim, this angel with a flaming sword is denying sinners access to the presence of God after the fall of mankind. We can no longer be in the presence of God because our sin is too great. And maybe that's exactly what you're feeling today, that God is very distant from you. Well, if we continue to read through the scriptures, we get to the prophets and a guy by the name of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 10 and verses 18 and 19, you read this. It says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of of the God of Israel was over them. Here's Ezekiel. He has this vision. He has this dream. And we read about this cherubim. These angelic beings that are kind of frightening to look at. And they're standing there right at the entrance of the temple of God. And it's almost like they're holding people back and they're saying, you know what? You can't get too close to God. You, you just can't come in here right now because your sin is too great. That, that these cherubim served as a blockade from the holiness of God, even in the glorious visions of the prophets. I mean, here you can't even get close to God in your dreams, right? You think, well, maybe at least in a vision or in a dream I can get close to God, but no. These cherubim are standing there. They are keeping humanity at a distance because our sin is far too great. You see this as well when you think about what happens in Israel's history. God wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to be near them. He wanted to be among them. And so he had them build a tabernacle. Later on, they would build a more permanent structure, a temple, as a reminder that he was their God. They were his people. A place where they could come and worship him. In that tabernacle and in that temple, there was a room. It was called the Holy of Holies. And as some of you might remember, there was only one person, the high priest, who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. And he could only go in there one time a year, only after a series of sacrifices and cleansings had been performed. Well, in this room, there was something that was very sacred. There was something that would represent God and his covenant faithfulness very specifically. And it was the Ark of the Covenant, What's interesting is that on top of the Ark of the Covenant are these two cherubim. In fact, this is what we read in Exodus chapter 37 and verse 9. It says, The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. We have a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, but this is just a piece of furniture that has Ten Commandments in it and a jar of manna and Aaron's staff. All of these things that are reminders of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. But the cherubim are just standing there and they are a reminder that you can't get too close. There is still something that is separating you from the holy God of the universe. You see, the cherubim covered the Ark of the Covenant 
and provided a final barrier on the mercy seat between God and the holiest of priests. It was like they were, they, they were saying, uh, stay back. You, you can't get any closer to the presence of God. But it was more than just that. Because as they built this tabernacle later on the temple, before you got to the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, there was this huge curtain that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And this huge curtain, it was 60 feet tall. And it was thick. It was as thick as the breadth of a man's hand. Why was this curtain so big? Why was this curtain so thick? Well, it was to block, it was to stop people from coming into the very presence of God. In fact, Exodus chapter 36 and verse 35, we read this. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine-twined linen with cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. Did you catch that? These were the the very specific instructions that were given by God to the people. When you are putting together this huge curtain, keeping people from getting too close to the presence of God, I want you to sew cherubim into the fabric. Make sure that you put them all over the place. What's fascinating is that even in this moment, the cherubim are sewn into the very fabric of the curtain that separated the people from the Holy of Holies. So this, these, this angelic being is always telling us throughout history, because of your sin, you can't get too close to God anymore. Stay back. You can't get as close as you were intended to be. Things have changed. There's not a way that, that, that uh, you, you can get in right now. Things are not the way that they used to be back when Adam and Eve were in the garden. If you go back in your mind to that image of the Garden of Eden for just a moment, think about that cherubim that's standing there with that flaming sword in his hand. Genesis chapter 3 talks about how this sword turns every single way. That no matter where you go, no matter what you try to do, you can't get in. Which I think is very interesting because I think it teaches us this, that man's attempts to reconcile with God are not only improbable, but they're actually impossible. That any efforts to, uh, that, that man makes to say, you know what, let's see if we can get back into the presence of God will be absolute failures at that. I mean, if you've ever studied any of the world religions out there, you can see this. That every world religion says, you know what, if you just do these particular things, if you jump through these hoops, if you go on this trip, if you give this money, if you fast this long, if you do these good things, then you're going to be able to get in there with God. But everywhere you turn, the cherubim is standing there with this flaming sword in his hand. And he is saying, this is not the way in. You can't get in this way. And so the question is, well, what are we going to do? If every attempt to reach God in our own strength, our own power, our own wisdom has been opposed on every single side, then what are we going to do? Well, this is where Matthew chapter 27 comes in. We find ourselves on Good Friday, and I want us to begin reading here in verse 45. It says this, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In the Gospel of John, we're told that in that moment, what Jesus said was, My, my uh, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he bows his head and he says, It is finished. But then I want you to see what it says here, Matthew chapter 27, beginning in, uh, there in verse 51 and following. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also were open. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Did you notice what happened there in verse 51? That in that moment, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, when he absorbed the wrath of God that was intended for people who were called by his name, what was it that ripped in two? It was that curtain, right? There were these cherubim that were sewn into this huge curtain that was blocking people from the Holy of Holies, blocking people from the Ark of the Covenant, blocking people from the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross, the cherubim laid down his sword. He put it down. And it's incredible to think about this. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing powerful enough to disarm the cherubim. This is the symbol of God's wrath, of God's separation. Man tries all of these different things to to get around this. But when Jesus died on the cross, it's like this huge curtain just completely gets torn in two. Like a flimsy piece of paper torn in two. I mean, can you imagine being a priest there in the temple that day? Can you imagine what that must have been like? You're a priest on duty. You've got all these different tasks to do. You're watching over the temple. You're working while all this huge crowd is outside loudly protesting and and going absolutely crazy in the city. They, They want Jesus dead and they are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Seems like all of the action is going on outside as Jesus is beaten and mocked and spit upon as he carries his own cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and is then hung there on that cross. As a priest in the temple there that day, you may have wished that you weren't even there. You know, I want to be outside. I'm missing all of the action that's going on out there. But then... All of a sudden, this thing that had been keeping you out of the Holy of Holies, that thing that had been keeping you at a distance from the Ark of the Covenant, that thing that had been keeping you back from the presence of God and also the wrath of God, all of a sudden, this enormous curtain is torn in two from the top to the bottom. The cherubim 
have uh, kept you back. But now all of a sudden you are staring at the Ark of the Covenant that is representing the very presence of God. And I don't know what happened in that moment. Maybe some of the priests uh, started uh, trying to shield their faces and they, they were expecting that they were going to be struck dead in that moment. Maybe there were others who started grabbing a hold of the curtain and tried to put it back together, but it just wasn't happening. The question is this, well, why is it that when Jesus died outside of the city, that on the other side of town in the temple, this curtain is torn in two? Well, it's trying to teach you and I something in this moment, as well as the people who were there that day. Jesus died so that God's wrath wouldn't have to be poured out on us anymore. It's over. It's finished. It is completely done. The cherubim has laid down his sword. And we can now enter into the very presence of God, not because we found a way, but because Jesus made a way. Everything we would, everywhere that we would turn, the cherubim was there keeping us back in all of our efforts. But when Jesus made a way, I picture the cherubim taking that flaming sword, laying it down and saying, you know what? I'm going to go home now. My job is done. God's wrath has been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus took the wrath of God for us. And the only way that the cherubim lowers his defenses is if our sin has been forgiven. Listen, I don't know where you are tonight. I mean, maybe you're here and you hear me describing what happened when Jesus died, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two, that you were welcomed back into the presence of God, and that gives you great joy, it gives you confidence, it gives you a whole new perspective and outlook on life. Or maybe you're here and you hear these events being described and you think, well, maybe God can save some people, but I don't think he can save me. I've, I've sinned far too much. I've done too many bad things. If that's you, I want you to just hear something that I'm about to say right now. If you are a child of God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. The Bible says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are here this evening and you've heard the gospel message and you've accepted that message of forgiveness and grace, then God's not holding his wrath so that he can just give it to you later on. No, it is finished. It is done. The cherubim has laid down his thorn. If you are a child of God, then stop thinking that God is out to get you. He is for you. He loves you. He took your place on the cross. Listen, friends, any version of Christianity that still has God standing at a distance from you is not Christianity. If you think, you know what, God, yeah, I know God loves me, but he's still frustrated with me. He's still keeping me at a distance. Well, that is not true Christianity. That is not the gospel message. When Jesus died on the cross for your sin, he died for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Not just part of them, all of them. Child of God, when the curtain in the temple was torn in two, you were forgiven. Completely forgiven. Maybe you're here this evening and you don't know if you're a child of God yet. Let me tell you how you can know. If you could get to heaven by being a good person or 
by coming to church on Good Friday, or by giving money to a particular organization to help people out. If you could get to heaven by doing those things, it would make no sense that Jesus went to the cross. I mean, his crucifixion would just be barbaric and inhumane. But the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross is because there was no other way for sins to be forgiven and for us to be welcomed into the presence of the holy God of the universe. God created this world. He made it good. We messed things up by rebelling against him. Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And if any of us were there in their place, we would have done the same thing. In fact, we have all looked, for, looked at God at times and we have said, you know what, I know better than you. I can do things better than you can. What happened is that there was no way to get back to God. Cherubim kept us at an arm, arm's length. But Jesus came to earth. He took on flesh. He lived the perfect life. He never sinned. After healing the lame and the blind and the diseased, after casting out evil spirits and pointing people to God, he was crucified on the cross because there is no other way for sin to be paid for. And friend, if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, you can experience forgiveness and salvation. You can experience those things today. The picture of salvation is like this. That you are standing behind the cross. God's wrath is coming at you like a flood. But Jesus is getting hit by all of that wrath. And you remain safe. Here's the problem though. If you don't have Christ. It's like you're not standing behind the cross anymore. And now God's wrath is coming directly at you. And you aren't safe. You, you aren't safe to be in his presence. Friends. The cherubim laid down his sword, not because we finally got our act together, but because Jesus already had his act together and he died in our place. What it means to receive the gospel message is to have faith in Jesus, to say, yes, I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sin, that he uh, he's making me into a new creation, that one day I'll live in his presence in heaven for all of eternity. You you don't have to be away from the presence of God anymore. Come back home. Come back to the garden. Back to the Holy of Holies. Back to the very presence of God. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. God wants to welcome you. He wants to embrace you. Maybe you're here this evening and you're saying, you know what? I'm going to say yes to Jesus for the first time. I'm going to say yes to his great salvation. Well, it is a good night to do that. Maybe you're here and you've already said yes to Jesus. And if that's you, then I pray that you would rejoice in your salvation. That you would be thankful that the cross of Jesus Christ was able to disarm the cherubim. So that you could freely walk into the presence of God once again. Let's pray.